1: Hi, this is Dr. Joy. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to neighbor. It takes a neighborhood.
2: And welcome to Mark Hummel's Harmonica Party. I'm here with Jeff Vargin, and we are going to be talking about all things blues, harmonica, all kinds of subjects. We're going to get into all kinds of things on this show. And uh, I think today I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about just, uh, well, I want to definitely talk about my friend James Harmon, who just passed away uh, a week ago yesterday. And uh, I we're planning on. I'm hoping we can air this on his birthday, which is June 8th.
3: Yeah, it's, well, the viewers will know.
2: Yes, the viewers they will. will know if, if it's, it's June, June 8th, 8th, then you know it's James Harmon's birthday. Then you birthday. know it's James Harmon's birthday. Yeah. But what I would like to just kind of start off uh, this episode, since this is the very first episode we're doing, and uh, I you kind of suggested this as an idea, and that is just a lot of the. Uh, the controversies that are going on in the blues world at the mm-hmm, moment, mm. and uh, and a lot of it, you know, has to do with Black Lives Matter and uh, and and whites and blacks and blues music and 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 uh, this whole conversation. And I guess what I wanted to get into a little bit is just the whole uh, uh, situation. How you know blues. Is from the south it's african-american music it's uh, something that all of the white blues musicians that play it have adopted mm-hmm. they don't have ownership to it and uh, I think it's important to state that uh, when when you're talking about blues music because it comes out of black people's hardships and um, Those of us whites that got into it in my generation and the generation before, because really the generation before mine was probably the first generation of blues artists that were white, that adopted black blues. And that would be, that would be, you know, the, the, the sixties, a lot of the um, uh, sixties blues people out of Chicago and, and places like that. Prior to that, there was a lot of, uh, White musicians that were playing jazz and had relationships with a lot of the older uh, 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 jazz musicians that were black people, like Louis Armstrong and uh, um, oh uh, Sidney Bechet and all these all these artists that got discovered and then brought over to Europe. And so uh, Big Bill Brunzi Big you know, there's there's so many people that have been. um, There's always been a real cross-pollination in the South. And I think that's kind of what I wanted to get into is the whole uh, uh, culture of the South that kind of both created blues and also uh, kind of put certain dividing lines in there. Where does the with
3: British police? invasion come into all this? When did the stones, well, that, that's your, You're
2: guys? getting way ahead of that. I'm way ahead, okay. <laughs> you're all right. way so ahead. I'm just... I'm you're way ahead, ahead, ahead of us now, yeah. Cause, cause my no, because knowledge I of, wanted to go way back to, like, you know, the the twentieth the early 20th century. Well, let's hear
3: about the 20th century and how these guys transitioned from... Were they playing the Chitlin Circuit? Is that what they were playing back then? Well, the I the mean,
2: old blues musicians? Black music was always in a very segregated kind of format, uh, you know, from, from the time of its inception. It was, it was, in the South, there was, you know, I mean, that's where they had, you know, uh, uh, ropes and stuff in the theater that would divide up the white part of the right. uh, uh, theater from, the, from the, where the black folks sat. So, I mean, you know, there's always been this kind of uh, segregation coming from the white, uh, officials, and it was really both white musicians and black musicians that kind of uh, got rid of that. I guess would be the best way to put it. But I mean, one of the one of the things I was talking to uh, my friend Nathan James, who actually played with James Harmon for 23 years, is I was you know we were talking about uh, you know we were talking about James. But we were. I was also telling him you know about the very first time that I played down south was in the mid-80s. This was like 1986. And uh, what a shock it was mm. to go down there and play in the deep south. And uh, things are different now, but, you know, it's me, it Tell me, is, tell me what does it not. mean to
3: be shocked? What is a shock?
2: I'm just saying, you know, having, you know, played in... Clubs in California and and, uh, the Northeast, you know, you'd have black people and white people coming into the clubs. In the South, it's not like that. Mm. You know, when you play on Beale Street, it would be either a black audience or it would be a a white audience. But it was like most cities you would go to, except for maybe New Orleans. Well, Memphis actually was a little bit integrated, too. New Orleans was always seems to be more integrated than uh, some of the other cities. But if you went in the sticks or you went uh, to even cities like uh, Jackson, Mississippi, that wasn't the case.
3: Was there a time when, when as a white blues player, you could not play black clubs, and black blues players could not play white clubs? When, when you were I mean, when
2: when I was coming up because I started playing when I moved up here in 1974, I started playing really mainly in black clubs because that was really the only place you could play blues. If you weren't working the Fillmore Auditorium, mm-hmm. which very few, you know, players of, right. you know, that were local could, could play at, then you were playing uh, in black blues joints with, with with a lot of black musicians, and and there were a few white musicians that were going into those clubs. But it it wasn't... It was it was still a pretty much of an anomaly compared to uh, you know it was it was closer to how it was say in Chicago in the 60s. By the early 70s, it was kind of a similar situation here. So I could play out in places like North Richmond, or I could play in places like uh, Oakland, or you know like people would go you know a few white musicians would play in Hunters Point places like that. But uh, it was still very very much kind of a segregated thing. But black folks were much more welcoming. I remember the first time I played at a black club, it was like I was blown away with how nice people were uh, to me, even though, you know, if a black person had gone to a white country and Western club, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't have been welcomed at all. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of blew me away about uh, the difference between the way the black blues audience behaved and the way the white you know, white people behaved, and right. so that always just shocked me. And uh, and you know, it, it things things changed over the next twenty years considerably because mainly because a lot of the older folks that were going to blues gigs just got too old to go out. And now it's kind of like you got that with white people. White people are getting too old to go out because it's people my age and older. Mm-hmm hmm. And so you have a really different kind of uh, scene now. And the fact that most of the first generation, you know, uh, first generation electric uh, uh, giants are gone. I mean, the elders of the blues, you know, people like T-Bone Walker, you know, Muddy Waters or, or even James Cotton now. And, you know, uh, so many other, you know, B.B. King, all these people have passed away. And so essentially you only have a few black musicians that are playing, you know, playing the blues. There is a, a, a new generation coming along and there's there's some people that I've really enjoyed, you know, uh, listening to like Quan uh, Willis and, and uh, um, Marquise Knox and, and a few others, uh, Andrew Ali, who's a great harp player, out of uh, Richmond, Virginia. But it's still, you know, comparatively, it's much more of a white musician-dominated world. And so that's caused a lot of, you know, strange kind of feelings, I think, among, uh, you know, a lot of the African-American musicians because, you know, there's this thing of, like, if you start thinking that, you know, blues started with Stevie Ray Vaughan, Mm-hmm. it didn't mm-hmm. right? you know if you start thinking it started with the Rolling Stones it didn't it goes way back it's you know all these these greats that recorded and, and that got all of the people of my generation into the music in the first place you know when I first started it was like you know these guys were gods and they, I still feel that way you know I mean The first time I went to, you know, music clubs down in Los Angeles when I was like, you know, 15, 16 years old, you know, I was going to see James Cotton or Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee or, uh, you know, B.B. King or um, Muddy Waters, Jimmy Rogers, uh, all these different artists that were, you know, Jimmy Witherspoon that were playing in clubs in Los Angeles.
3: So why do you think that blues sort of stayed in that lane. Was it that the big record companies were not signing blues artists or they kind of never have. It seemed like BB yeah. King was the is like the 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 name everybody knows. Whether yeah. they've heard a song or not, they they've heard of BB King.
2: And the weird thing is BB was kind of late to the game in a lot of ways. I mean Muddy Waters and Howl Wolf were kind of names that were out there more in the forefront even when BB was still playing just primarily black nightclubs mm-hmm. you know and 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 by 1970 he had thrill is Gone which was his first really major you know hit on pop radio and that really opened a lot of doors for him but prior to that, you know, unfortunately, he was, you know, like him and Bobby Bland and Little Milton. They were all kind of relegated to the chilton circuit, mm-hmm. and that was, and and they really didn't have the doors open that you know uh, Muddy or or Helen wolf or some of those artists did. So, so where does James Harden f- or James Harmon fit into this? Well, situation? James Harmon is is a generation older than me because he was nine years older than me. Um, He, along with people like, you know, Charlie Musselwhite, who was out there even a little bit before James, Paul Butterfield, um, Mike Bloomfield, who was uh, friends of both Butterfield and Musselwhite. uh, 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 You know, there were English acts that definitely made a splash, you know, people like Fleetwood Mac or Cream or, you know, I mean, that's kind of I got into the blues. Really, kind of through the back door of, of, of the you know the English rockers,
3: right? And a lot primarily. of people probably wouldn't know that Fleetwood Mac started as a blues. Oh, well,
2: they started as bluesman big yeah. time with Peter Green and that yeah. Peter that Green early incarnation.
3: This is before yeah. Lindsey Buckingham, before way Steve before Phoenix.
2: that, far before that. Right. And and eventually, I'll do a segment on him because he's yeah. a fascinating character. But uh, uh, you know what I wanted to say is is that you know people like James or um, uh, you know a lot of the people that are on this record because this, this album this is a one called Blues Harmonica Meltdown and this is the volume one that came out in 2000 and it's got Kim Wilson who was at the Fabulous Thunderbirds, mm-hmm. Rick Estrin, who was in Little Charlie and the Nightcats James Harmon who had his own group uh, uh, a guy named Gary Smith that lives down in San Jose who was uh, one of the early guys doing it, uh, uh, Billy Branch who's one of the uh, you know, generation that, you know, he was, he's an African-American that played with uh, Willie Dixon and and uh, uh, a lot of other artists out of Chicago. He recorded with a lot of people out of Chicago. So, you know, I mean, you know, people like Robert Cray made a big splash mm-hmm. in the 80s. Fabulous Thunderbirds, Stevie Ray Vaughan. The, all those acts really made a big splash uh, because there was a younger, at the time, my Age group was obviously younger. They were going out to nightclubs more, so there was a much bigger scene in the '80s, and '90s in mm-hmm. terms of nightclubs.
3: I was living in Southern yeah. California back then, and so there was the Dynatones, the Blasters, the Fabulous Thunderbirds, right. Top Jimmy. There was yeah, all these exactly sort of, and that's kind of where that's where Har-
2: that's where Harmon yeah. really kind of he fit into that scene. I mean, Harmon came out with this band with a guy named Hollywood Fats on guitar, um, another guitar player named Kid Ramos that's still alive, uh, Willie J. Campbell on bass, Stephen Hodges, who now plays with uh, Mavis Staples and played a lot with Tom Waits. He was the drummer. Mm -hmm. Gene Taylor, who played with uh, uh, the Blasters and then, you know, also played Mm -hmm. with James. So, I mean, those all these... Acts and musicians are very intertwined. There mm-hmm. was definitely, a, I mean, the funny thing about West Coast blues is all of us know each other. And when you go out on the road, like all of us were going out on the road, you start to get to know all the different musicians. So when you say you West run Coast into blues, each other.
3: though, now, that, now I'm getting confused about whether the blues music is West Coast or whether it is... Um a geographical, that you all live in one place. Is there a difference between Chicago blues and West Coast blues?
2: It's more where people live. I mean, you know, the the, th- the thing to me that's really interesting about James Harmon was that um, he, like I say, he grew up in Anniston, Alabama. He was born in uh, June 8, uh, 1946. But he really, he, he kind of got into music when he was in Anniston, you know, his father was the sheriff of Aniston, and there's, there's some backstory to that, uh, if you know about the civil rights bus mm-hmm. burning that was there. Uh, but uh, he, he grew up getting interested in blues because, you know, if you went literally right across the tracks from where he lived, you were in the black side of town, right. and, there, and, was a, and if people there were musicians aware, that were playing there that he got to see. If people aren't aware, James Harmon was white. Yes, he was a white guy, and uh, and was playing black music. And in a sense, I, I I tend to think that that was kind of a somewhat rebellious, revolutionary right. thing to do. With as sheriff in a yeah. small southern town, you know, and to be a white guy playing blues in the South, especially if you're playing with black musicians, or even you know um, going to see black musicians, that means something. Uh, You know, so people like him or or in Memphis, Charlie Musselwhite was hanging around Memphis and, you know, going to Will Shade, you know, Will Shade's house and and learning to play guitar and, uh, you know, uh, oh, who's the other guy, Uh, Furry Lewis, people like that. Uh, you know, Charlie moved to Chicago and got to know all the musicians there just by accident, really. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, you know, the blues was such a part of the culture that you kind of couldn't help running into it, if that makes any sense. It was just like the fabric of the culture. I mean, whether you were black or white, you were going to hear blues on the radio. You are going to hear it coming out of, you know, people's houses or whatever. And so that's the interesting thing to me about the South was that it really was a fabric of, of life down there and I think that's where James or Charlie or or uh, you know my friend Fingers Taylor that was from you know moved to Jackson Mississippi um, a lot of these harmonica players down there that was really what happened was that they got, they got exposed to this music and they fell in love with it and the fact that they got out of there, that says something, too. Mm-hmm. If you moved out of the South by the time you were 18 years old, that's saying something. Right. You know, there must be something about it you weren't that crazy about. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of the way I approach it. But I I also got to say, I mean, you know, I've been going to the South, like I say, since 1986. And when I first started going down there, I mean, we had... Uh, Uh, My drummer was a guy named June Core who's still around here and I still play with him all the time. And June's a black man. and, And I remember he used to stay in the van when we'd go into a fast food restaurant in the 80s. In the 80s, Wow. and now he was a vegetarian. So maybe part of it is he figured he couldn't right. find anything to eat at those yeah. places. But nonetheless, there was just I I can't help thinking that if you're black and you're in the South and you're with a bunch right. of white guys, it kind of creates a certain
3: and even if he was a vegetarian, vibe that, yeah, I mean, even if he was a vegetarian. It,
2: he wasn't. Comfortable. I don't want to speak for him yeah. because June's still around, and he can speak for himself.
3: But for folks that grew up in that era, in that time, it's part of their DNA of of where you, how you function in
2: the world. You know, it's just. I just think that you know, it's, if you're if you're if you're at all sensitive to vibes, you pick up vibes, mm-hmm. and you know, there's certain things that are going to make somebody feel uncomfortable. Uh, you know, like I say, that one time in 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 a bar in in uh, I think it was Oxford, Mississippi, and some guy came up and tried to compliment me with a you know using the N word, and it's like you know, it just blew blew me away. I was I was like, what the hell is this? Man? Yeah, yeah. And it was like that was his way of complimenting me. Huh. So, I mean, there's a whole different kind of ball game going on with the way people were back then. And the difference is, and like, you know, the difference is now that young people have a much different attitude about race than they did back then. And there's not as many young people that are getting taught, you know, that, that blacks and whites are different. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like an old time thing. It's kind of something of the past. And the only way it's going to be done away with is when, you know, young people stop adhering to that old way of thinking. Right. Right. And, and, and I mean, I was fortunate because I, the way I grew up was I grew up with parents that, you know, my father was the minister, you know, of a Methodist church in, in the projects. So I was going to church with black kids, and I was the only white kid around. Or I was going to school with Mexican kids. I was, you know, one of the only white kids there. So I was kind of in the opposite sort of situation that most white kids, most white kids were growing up with being surrounded by all white kids. They weren't being surrounded by, you know. So, I mean, the awful thing was, you know, if you were, say, Black, and you went to uh, the school I went to, it was all Mexican kids, and, the, and at the time, the Mexicans were kind of jealous of the blacks getting so much attention back mm. then, in the mid-60s. So, you know, there was just a, a lot of complexity racially, but, you know, the bottom line is I didn't grow up in, in a way that I think most, right. most people did, and that, I, I like to think that gave me a different viewpoint. You know, we had black babysitters when I was, you know, a toddler, and, and they'd play R&B on the radio. And and uh, so, you know, I mean, the first music I heard, I remember it wasn't until years later I realized I'd heard Jimmy Reed and Slim Harpo on the radio when I was like probably eight years old, and I didn't recognize it as blues because it was just black music it's to just
4: me. Just music,
3: yeah.
2: You
3: know? yeah. So how does coming back around to... James Harmon, he comes out of Mississippi. No, he came out of Alabama. Out of Alabama. um, And then he moves, and you come across him how, and what was his influence on you?
2: Well, I kind of accidentally stumbled on Harmon because in 1971, I'd been playing harmonica for about a year, And I went to a concert at a place called Rio Hondo College in Whittier, and there was a band opening the show called the Ice House Blues Band. And I didn't know this until years later when Harmon told me this. It was James, James singing and playing harp, a guy I know named Buddy Reed, who played with me much later on guitar, who also played in a band called Bacon Fat. So... I saw these guys and I thought, wow, these guys kind of remind me of Canned Heat, sort of. You know, they like a, you know, a junior version mm-hmm. of Canned Heat. You know, because they had long hair and they had beards and they were doing boogie and slide guitar and, you know, they had uh, just kind of a, 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 you know, rock blues thing going right, right. at the time. And, and then there was a right. band called Bertha that played on the bill as well. That was. This, this all-woman rock band that was, you know, had a very attractive bass player. <laughs> That's all I Some remember. Some things you remember. Yeah, certain things certain I remember. Things you always remember. They were much yeah. prettier what than Harmon and Buddy. Playing? What kind of bass was she playing? She was playing the kind that fits right in, the, in but, a good but spot. But you don't know yeah. no, if I it, I don't, was it was a Fender, Fender. Probably a Fender or, P bass. I don't know. Yeah, but well you weren't paying attention to that. I was not. So... Um, That was the first time I saw James, and it wasn't until the 80s that I saw him again, and that was when he came up to um, the Bay Area. I think that's when I first met James in about 1984. He played a club called the Last Day Saloon in Mm -hmm. San Francisco.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. And uh, he had this great band with Hollywood Fats on guitar and Kid Ramos on guitar and Willie J on bass and Hodges on a big like, you know, 36-inch bass drum or something. And he had this great big kick drum that said, Those Dangerous Gentlemen." Oh, very on nice. It. And so that was the first time I saw those guys. But it was really not until about a year later that I saw them do a gig at Larry Blake's that they just really knocked my socks off because they were, you know, the guitars were really firing on all cylinders. And James was putting on a great show. It was a packed house. And the band rocked. And and that was when I realized how great these guys were. And I, I'd, I'd known Hollywood Fats from way before that because he used to play. When I first got into blues in the in the early '70s, he was playing around. He was playing. You know, I saw him do a show with, uh, I think it was uh, Pee Wee Creighton and Big Joe Turner and Cleanhead Vincent or or somebody like that. You know, and he was backing them up. I saw him with the. Um, Jimmy Witherspoon, I saw him with his own band, the Hollywood Fats Band, uh, at least a couple times. Uh, So, you know, I mean, I I had seen him play, but with the Harmon Band, it was really on fire. So when,
3: did he do the traditional go to Chicago and then come West, or how, how did he end up
2: here? Well, Harmon ended up here, and I found this, you know, I mean, Harmon used to always tell me, he'd say... Yeah, well, you know, uh, the bear told me to move out here from Can't He, Bob Height, you know. And uh, so Fido, the drummer, Fido de la Para called me up day before yesterday and asked about Harmon, you know. And I've known Fido for a while and, and he just said, uh, he said, what happened? And I told him what happened and he said, you know, I remember him so well from way back then, he goes, because he used to come over and hang out at the Bear's house all the time. And we'd sit around, we'd listen to blues records. And I think that was how Harmon got into, because Bob Height, the Bear, had the second or first biggest collection of 78s in either the country or the world. I think it was in the world. He had one of the biggest collection of old 78s of country blues and uh, and so Harmon got into the same thing and the deal with the bear was he was really into the old he was really into the old 78s by the the guys from the 20s and 30s mm-hmm. and and 40s so if something was was really you know rare and hard to find he'd find a copy of it and he'd have multiple copies and a lot of times i mean you know Harmon was doing the same sort of thing and so one of the things about James that I noticed after getting to know him longer was how steeped in this old style of blues he was which was the country blues and, and, and that a lot of his songs kind of were reminiscent of, of some of these older older artists like you know P.D. Wheatstraw or Big Bill Brunzi or Brownie McGee or different people like that and, um, so I started noticing that more and more in his music that just, you know, Sonny Terry was a definite influence on harmonica, uh, of his, um, you know, Sonny Boy Williamson, Rice Miller was an influence. Uh, uh, John Lee, Sonny Boy Williamson first was an influence. Uh, Jazz Gillum, all these old guys. But, you know, also people like Big Walter Horton and Little Walter. You know, you kind of couldn't help be influenced by all of these guys. But he really had a connection to the country blues stuff, and that really ended up in his music.
3: Well, and- how about we listen to a James Harmon song? Okay. Let's... What do you suggest?
2: I'd say let's, you know, this is one I, I heard on my iPod about a month or two ago that I've had, you know, we. this is from the first harmonica blow-off. This is from the the Blues, uh, blues Heart Meltdown um, Mountaintop 2000. It's a two-disc set. And uh, this is one called Backdoor Rumba. And, and this is really James on fire on this one.
3: Okay, Backdoor Rumba. Here we go.
5: Tell me where it, baby. What in the world? What in the world? I'm supposed to do? Tell me about it, man.
2: Alright, so that was James Harmon doing Backdoor Rumba. That's off the Blues Harp Meltdown CD that's got an incredible lineup of players. Kim Wilson, Billy Branch, Rick Estrin, uh, James Harmon, myself, Gary Smith, that's Junior Watson on the guitar right there, R.J. Michos on harmonica on this. Uh, It's a double disc, and um, we've actually got four different harmonica meltdowns. James, James is also on this Electrify one. This one is called Still Here and Gone. And uh, by the way, Electrify Records sponsors our podcast today, as does Seidel Harmonicas, as does uh, Mountaintop Records, who uh, Mountaintop produced my book, Big Road Blues, 12 Bars on I-80, all about road stories, including a couple about Harmon in there. But um, th- what, I wanted to, what I wanted to mention, one more thing before we go, is that uh, uh, James incorporated this country blues styling into his later stuff. It, it kind of really came into his music in, later in life. You know, the older he got, it seemed like that, that kind of early influence seemed to creep in there uh, the last, say, 15, 20 years of, of his recording, um, and he, uh, he did an album for Electrify Records that I love. This, he did two albums for this label that sponsored, Andrew Galloway, who is sponsoring the show, uh, recorded uh, this one called Fine Print, that's a really great album and also one called uh, Bone Time. And these are both really great James Harmon records that he released uh, in the last few years. What year was this? 2018. And the, the one I was thinking you could play on this was one uh, I talked to my friend Charlie Lang that used to book James, and, and I mentioned I was going to play a cut on here, and he goes, oh, man, you got to play Memory Foam Mattress. Oh, Memory because Foam. Because this has really got the... Uh, the country blues influence in it but it also is just such a great example of James and the way he could come up with these lyrics it's like bob dylan bob dylan could come up with lyrics that were like a little movie and james could do the same thing on his songwriting this guy wrote a song a day Every for day. the last yeah for the last 15 years he had something like he's got something like 16 albums worth of songs that have not been recorded So he was just a prolific writer. He was just an amazing entertainer because he was funny as all get out. I mean, I could tell you so many great stories about his uh, just, you know, the things he would say and uh, one, of, one of the ones that I actually just texted Charlie Musselwhite and said give me some good Harmon stories and he mentioned one because another guy that passed away was uh, just in the last month was uh, Paul Osher who mm-hmm. used to play with Muddy Waters and uh, <laughs> James said the first time that he, he, he met Paul it was when Muddy Waters was playing at I think it was at the Troubadour in Los Angeles and he said Muddy uh, got up there and played, and and, and, and Paul Oster was the harmonica player. He was the first white harmonica player in Muddy's band. Again, the same thing that we're talking about. You know, it was a rare thing back then. And so so Harmon and Rod Piazza and, and Johnny Dyer, who was uh, uh, another character, uh, George Harmonica Smith, who was one of the really famous harmonica players in Los Angeles, they all went went to the show, and Charlie Musselwhite was sitting there at a table, and Muddy calls him up, and of course, Osher being the the troublemaker he was, you know, as soon as uh, Muddy called up Charlie, uh, Osher just takes all the knobs on the amp and just twists them all over, so Charlie would get nothing but feedback, and Charlie kind of, what the hell was that? You know, it gets really pissed off, you know, so so Asher comes up afterwards and, <laughs> and tries to talk to Charlie and Charlie <laughs> grabs him by the tie and pulls him down into the table
6: and goes, don't ever do that
2: again. Wow. And did he? Did he do it again? <laughs> no, I'm sure Never. he didn't. So, and so after that, Char, you know, Paul was pissed off the rest of the gig and so these guys are hanging outside like, uh, 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 Harmon and 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 Rod and and Johnny Dyer and George Smith are all hanging against a hanging against a car, you know, just just shooting the breeze, you know. And I guess Paul Osher's in a bad mood and he wants to take it out on somebody. He hears Harmon's voice and his southern accent and goes, "Hey, I saw you. Yeah, you're gonna throw you're gonna throw that empty beer mug at me." <laughs> and George Smith intervenes and goes. No, you're mistaken, Paul. He goes. He goes. Paul, James never has an empty beer mug. <laughs> <laughs> and that like broke. That broke the ice, you know. So.
3: So let's go out. Uh, let's play memory foam mattress. And when we come back, Mark's going to play a couple tunes for you. Foam
5: mattress. <laughs> I'm on self, a memory pump mattress, baby. Holds oh, too many memories of you. It reminds me of our golden year. Before you said you was through, you know you swore on your mama's Bible that forever you. But you traded the devil your last breath to live forever, making me blue. I put your crushed velvet lazy boy in the dumpster out behind the mall. Folded up your TV dinner tray and tucked it neatly out in the hall. I saw your pink princess telephone. In the yard sale just yesterday You won't be calling that fella no more To tell him you're on your way I cashed in all those bottles You had blocking my garage My troubles all disappearing now Like they've been a down. Check finally comes in I'll create you A little shrine And I'll be smiling at it Every morning knowing you in hell And doing fine Oh yeah Now the devil Drives a hard bargain As devils often will He wanted a little something extra To sweeten your deals Old devil was not satisfied About the deal you forced on him So he helped me with my dirty work He said, he told me You want me to handle this for you, Jim?
2: All right, before I do this next song, I'd like to give it a little intro. Because I wrote this song back in 1986, the first time I went over to Europe. And uh, two of the guys that I'd played in the band with were both sick with uh, cancer. One of them, Johnny Waters, had cancer. And my friend Sonny Lane had uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, I remember it was the first time I went to Europe. So I had horrible jet lag on top of that and I couldn't sleep, and these guys were on my mind, just their their situation, and they died probably the following year, but uh, it, it definitely uh, did a number on me, and I wrote this song called Rolling From Side to Side back then, and it seems like over the last few years with all these people that I've known in the blues passing away, it keeps bringing this song back. How many people have gone on to the other side that I've known, so um, I'm going to do this one for James Harmon right now.
6: side to side Let down last night People I was rolling from side to side close my eyes My stomach was churning People just like a hurricane My stomach was churning I was thinking by my friends That I saw so far away You know it's out of my hands babe All I can do is to pray
1: Hi, this is Dr. Joy. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to neighbor. It takes a neighborhood.